0: Pastor Logan comes to read the word with us now. If you would, turn in your copy of God's word with me to John chapter 6. John 6, we will begin in verse 48. Hear now the word of the Lord. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who these were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Let's pray. Father, as we come now to the sobering conclusion of the Bread of Life discourse, we ask, Lord, that You would help us to see uh, the beauty and the truths that Christ is putting forth to this people who are kicking against it. Father, we ask that You would help us to see who Christ truly is, who we truly are and what he is here offering freely to all who will come. Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for the mission that he undertook to save a people for himself. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for that which saves us, reconciles us to you. Thank you that it is his blood that has washed away our sin. Lord, help us to relish in that truth today and to behold wondrous things as we look at your word. pray this thing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. It is good to be back with you again. Well, this week I read an, an article that contained within it a quote that I have heard more times than I would have liked. And some of you may have heard this quote yourselves. In the early 20th century, Mahatma Gandhi, who was the leader of the independence movement in India at the time, made the famous statement that has been used countless times ever since. As a, as a Hindu who showed some interest in Christian doctrine, he said this. He said, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Christ. Now, at first blush, as Christians, that can be seen as quite a rebuke. For it is the desire of every true believer, every true Christian, to faithfully represent Christ. Every true believer wants to be Christ-like. No doubt that quote over the years has been used thousands and thousands of times to shame Christians for not living up To what we claim to believe. In fact, the very article I was reading was a so called church growth article that was chastising Christians for being both judgmental and hypocritical. And it led out the introduction started with this quote from Mahatma Gandhi. Now, Christians most certainly can be judgmental and hypocritical, to be sure, absolutely. But here is the problem with that quote from Gandhi. Mahatma Gandhi is a liar. And so is everyone else who claims to love or admire or respect Jesus Christ who does not bend their knee to Jesus Christ. The fact is, when he says this, he's actually not talking about the true Christ. He is referring to a Jesus of his own making. A Jesus who makes moral declarations, but certainly not a Jesus who declared to be the exclusive and one true God. Not the Jesus who said he's coming back to judge the world in righteousness. Now Mahatma Gandhi does not like our Jesus. He does not like our Christ. Whatever standard of Christ he's trying to hold up to chastise us is not the Christ of the Bible, and it is most certainly not the Christ of of John chapter 6. Because as we will see today, this Christ and his claims are incredibly inf- offensive to the natural human heart. No, no pagan who has ever said that he is, mi- admires Christ is talking about this Christ. So don't don't be guilted by anyone who does not bend the knee to Jesus that tries to tell you that you are not Christ-like. In fact, the opposite is true. Jesus assured us that if we do represent Him well in this world, if we do act like Him, the world will hate us. It is that which will cause the world to hate us. Being Christ-like will not attract the world. It will not cause church growth as some suppose, it will actually do the opposite. It will repel the world, as we will see today. As we now come to the end of the Bread of Life discourse formal, we're going to see Christ ramp up his rhetoric here as he declares more of who he is and more of what is required of man to receive eternal life. And in this, we're going to see three final interchanges here, three final claims from Christ and three offended responses to those claims. And what we are seeing on here, uh, on display here, is just the absolute inability for the natural man, the natural human heart to receive the things of God. Now, we are just gonna, we're going to see how, how, how much of a spiritual business Christ truly is. The gospel truly is. Receiving Christ truly is from beginning to end. Christianity is a supernatural religion. Now, the gospel is a supernatural message. And it demands a supernatural reception. Now, Christianity is not something that you just sign up for or you just identify with it is actually something that happens to you. It is something that must happen to you. For if God does not intervene, all of our hearts would naturally reject Christ, the true Christ, and His message. And understanding that should actually affect how we spread this same message, how we proclaim this gospel to a lost and dying world. Because if we want to reach the world, we can't do it by human ingenuity, by attract, trying to attract the world. We must do it by the means that God has set forth, which is the proclamation of Christ. So let's dive into this message, and let's look at this first interchange in response, this first offense that we see from Christ, starting in verse 48. Look at what he says. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. So, after several eye-opening statements about God's sovereign prerogatives in salvation, the Father's work in salvation that we walked through for the past couple of weeks, Jesus has now returned back to His own identity. And He's returned back to where He began in verse 35, to His first I Am statement here in the Gospel of John, revealing an aspect of, of who He is as God. He says, I am the bread of life. And now, for for the remainder of this discourse, he is going to camp out on this spiritual metaphor. In fact, he is now going to explain and drive the implications of what he is saying beyond what these people can even handle. And he starts here in verse 49 by returning back to their own words and their own boast about their forefathers. Remember, this began with Jesus exhorting them not to be striving after that which is temporal, the the food that perishes, which was their true motive for following Christ. But they they were not after that which grants eternal life, which He clarified is achieved by belief in the One whom God has sent. And they responded to that back in verse 30 with that public challenge What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. And Jesus is now coming right back to that public challenge. And he says, Yeah, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. That's what it got them. What's his point? His point is, yes, the the manna in the wilderness was rained down from God. It was a miraculous gift from God to that grumbling generation, to be sure. It sustained them in the desert, but it was still the food that perishes. It was only good enough to sustain temporal life. It did nothing more than that. And the reason we know that is because they died. And they are actually the ones who died in the wilderness. They didn't even see the promised land because of their grumbling. But the manna itself was never meant to be the blessing upon that people. It was God. God was the blessing. God himself, the Israelites, had God in the camp. God's presence was in their camp with them. But that people cared more about their temporal needs than the very presence of God. And so does this one. This generation, too, just like their forefathers, is fixated on receiving the same kind of blessing that their forefathers received, not recognizing that right now God is in the camp. They are in the very presence of God. God is with them. But Jesus now contrasts Himself with their desires. Their desires for temporal bread versus that which is true bread. The living bread. The bread that produces true life, eternal life. Look at what He says verse 50. He says, This is the bread that comes down from heaven. So that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So Jesus is reasserting and clarifying what he has already said. But this time he pushes it further and he pushes the clarity of his meaning further. I mean, up to this point, he has made it clear that he is the true bread come down from heaven. He is the bread that satisfies all hunger and thirst. He said that back in verse 35. But that was obscure enough that they didn't take in all of the implications. Their prior offense that we, we looked at last week was centered merely on his claim that he came down from heaven. Remember, they said, how, how can he claim to come down from heaven? We know his mother and father. Who's this guy think he is? But now Jesus is, is reasserting that identity, and he's bringing up the implications in such a way that they cannot miss the point. I am the living bread come down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus is saying, yes, I'm the bread of life. But in order to get the benefit of life, life eternal, you got to eat. And the bread that you got to eat is my flesh. To put the question to you in the same shocking terms, have you eaten the flesh of Jesus Christ? What does that mean? Well, we will get there. But notice, Jesus just leaves it hanging. He's not anxious at all to avoid confusion here. If anyone wants to live forever, he has to eat my flesh, period. Full stop. And look at how they respond. Look at verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, the word disputed here is an extremely strong word. It's actually the word to fight. It's actually a word that's that's used to depict combat. But it can also be a heated quarrel, which is obviously what's going on here. John wants us to see that this is not some calm debate that is is going on. This, This crowd is now worked up into a frenzy at the words of Christ to the point that they are arguing and quarreling with one another, with themselves, to try to make sense of what Jesus is saying. But their big problem is that they too, just like we have seen over and over in this gospel, do not perceive the spiritual nature of what Jesus is saying. The dullness of their heart is on full display as they are just taking Him literally. They're taking what is being pressed here literally. And we've seen this over and over, highlighted all through this gospel. Remember, it began back in chapter 2 where Jesus, talking about His body, told the Jews, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And they respond with, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it up in three days? Or the same thing happened in John 3 with the teacher of Israel. Jesus says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you must be born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? And then in John 4, we saw it again. Jesus offers the woman at the well the living water that grants eternal life. And she responds, sir, you don't have anything to draw water with. Where are you going to get this living water. And now here we are again. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Is he advocating cannibalism? Is that what's going on here? This crowd, dull of heart, is taking him absolutely literally. And as a result, they are absolutely appalled and offended at the very notion of what Christ is saying. But I think what is even more surprising here for us as is, is outside spectators and readers of this entire scenario is that Jesus doesn't back down. He's actually going to push it further in order to reveal their hearts. Look at this second offense. Look at verse 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh, drinks my blood, has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Jesus doesn't back down from His words at all. He doesn't apologize for the way they took it. He doesn't adjust his approach in order to aid with clarity or avoid confusion. He actually does the very opposite of all of those things, and he he presses it further. He doubles down, so to speak, on what he's already said with language that is just inherently offensive to the natural mind. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. And actually, in verse 54 and 55, he uses a different word for eat than he does in 53. The ESV has rendered it as feeds, but this word is a little more graphic than the simple word eat that he used in 53. This word comes with the connotation of the action of eating, of biting and chewing. Jesus is just speaking in absolute base terms here. Chewing on my flesh. What, 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 are you, what are you talking about? This is grotesque. How can you say this, Jesus? See, this is, this is not language that one would expect from the one who is gentle and lowly, nor from the one who is simultaneously exalted and holy. And while this language would be shocking for anyone to hear, for the Jew, there's actually an added layer here. And that layer is their knowledge of, Of the law of God. Because God's law unequivocally condemns any and all consumption of blood. Now listen how strongly God spoke against this in Leviticus 17. He said, If anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. That's strong language. It's for that reason that the Jews avoid the consumption of blood at all costs. The law is clear on that. But here, Jesus is saying that His own blood must be consumed. In fact, He's actually conditioned eternal life on the consumption of His own flesh and the drinking of His own blood. I think there's two questions we need to ask at this point. What does he mean, and why did he phrase it this way? Now, for obvious reasons, as we talked about a few weeks ago, many interpreters come to this passage, and they make the conclusion that he's actually speaking here sacramentally, meaning that he is teaching on the Lord's Supper. Especially those of the Roman Catholic religion, they would be the primary ones who take that line of reasoning. However, we know that is not the case because of the conditional language that Jesus has put on this. He says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats feeds on My flesh and drinks My blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. If by that Jesus is merely talking about participation in the Lord's Supper or the blasphemous Mass... He has taught that all of eternal life is hanging on works. It's all hanging on whether or not one just participates in this religious ritual. Which, as I said before, is to flip Jesus' entire point on its head in this whole discourse. And it is to contradict everything else in the Gospel of John. So that is not at all what He's Teaching. Certainly, the principles of what he is teaching here underlie the Lord's Supper. But he is not directly teaching on the Lord's Supper. No, actually, when you compare the words that Jesus has already used prior to this, you only have one of two options. Either he's contradicting himself, or he's saying the same thing in a different manner. Because if you look back at verse 40, And we're going to compare that with verse 54 and look at the parallel nature of what he says. Verse 40 reads this, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now compare that with verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you see the the parallel structure of his words here? He's saying the same thing, just in different form. And both statements have the exact same result, the difference being the expression of that which leads to the results. But in truth, there is no difference. Uh, Many commentators here have brought up Augustine's words who said it faithfully when he said, Believe, and you have eaten. To believe upon Christ, to trust in Him, is to feed upon Him. It is to find life in His person. Jesus is still driving home the same point He's been driving the entire time. He's not presenting something different here at all. But the extra details in His words here do matter. There are some allusions here. There is a reason why He's phrased it this way. When He speaks of His flesh and His Blood, he's he's speaking in sacrificial terms. There's an allusion here to his coming death. See, the very reason, starting all the way back in the prologue, the very reason the word became flesh, the reason John uses that word back in John 1.14, the reason he became flesh was so that he would become the sacrificial lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John 1.29. The shedding of His blood, His death, is our hope. It is what rendered the payment for our sin and satisfied the wrath of God. This is is why Jesus said, The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He's pointing sacrificially to that which is to come. You see, true belief in Christ, you must believe in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. If you believe in His person or in a Messiah in general while denying His sacrifice, then you do not truly believe because His sacrifice is a part of who He is. He came to lay down His life. He came to shed His own blood. As it says in Revelation, He is the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundation of the world. He has always been the slain Lamb of God. That was His purpose from eternity past. You cannot separate His person and His work. So to eat His flesh and to drink His blood is to take in the truth of who He is and the truth of what He has done. It is to believe upon His person and to trust in His work it is to internalize Jesus Christ in totality through faith this is why he says his flesh is true food and his blood is true drink because unlike regular food and drink which we consume every day which the Jews were after from the get-go that can only sustain temporal life leading to death This food, however, this is true food. This food and drink, the drink of His blood and the food of His flesh sustains true life. Eternal life. True food produces true life. Food that perishes only upholds life that perishes. He is true food. And His blood is true drink. And you must partake if you want eternal life. You must feed upon His person and His work, through faith. For those who do, look at what He says. Look at verse 56. It says, Whoever feeds on My flesh and drinks My blood abides in Me, and I in Him. As the living Father sent Me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on Me He also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds this bread will live forever. Amazing promises. Amazing promises. Jesus now speaks, though, of the ongoing relationship that results between himself and anyone who partakes in him, anyone who eats his flesh. And drinks his blood. The word he used here in verse 56, abide. It's going to become a very important theological theme later in this gospel when, when Jesus expounds more on the union between believers with himself. But here he he introduces it, showing how partaking in him produces certain results. It results in a relationship of union between the believer. In Christ. That's why the Christian faith is not just some vague association with some particular religion. It is, it is rather actually an actual union, an actual communion with God through the Son of God. So much so that the very identity of the believer is now one who is in Christ. You know, we saw this all through our study of the book of Ephesians over and over Over, Paul reasserted that believers are those who are in Christ, that everything that we have received is because we are in Christ. This is why we are called the body of Christ, because we are in union with Christ. For the believer, our identity is now wrapped up with Christ. But it's not that we are just in Him. As Christ says here, it is also that He is in us. This was a foreshadowing of that which was coming of His indwelling believers through His Spirit, through the Spirit of Christ. It's because of this in Him, and Him, and us union that Paul was able to say in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ because Paul was in Christ. But then he was also to say, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is a A profound mystery that believers enter into union with Christ. profound blessing that we have. And further, what is hard to comprehend is that Jesus compares our union with Him to His union with the Father. Here He is is speaking of His... His abiding union with the Father in His incarnation. The one He calls the living Father. Speaking of the reality that the Father is the the source of all life. He has life in Himself. And He is speaking of their ongoing union in His incarnation. He says, As the living Father sent Me. The Son's incarnational life is bound up and dependent upon his father so much so that back in chapter 4 we saw Christ say that his very food was to do the will of the father the will of the one who sent him as the incarnate son he lives because of and for the father but in the in the same way he says whoever feeds on me he will also live Because of me. See, this is where eternal life comes from. This is how eternal life works. It comes from feeding on the eternal one. Our our life, our true life, is derived from the life that is in Christ. We live because He lives. Because He cannot die eternally We cannot die eternally if we are in union with Him. That's why Jesus closes out this discourse one more time saying, this is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Eternal life is derived from the eternal food That is Christ. Jesus is here telling this crowd, if you want to spend your life seeking after the same food that your father's got, temporal food, seeking after your temporal needs, then like them, you will die. But anyone who desires to live forever must eat of his flesh and drink his blood. Because true life comes from true food and true drink. While this was a very raw and crass way to say it, Jesus' words here are just full of glory and full of hope. But is that how the crowd heard it? Let's see how they respond. Look at verse 59. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So John notates that this was, in fact, the conclusion of the formal teaching, the Bread of Life discourse from Christ. And it all took place in a synagogue that was at his hometown at the time, in Capernaum. And the reason why that little detail is important is it shows how open and how public Jesus was with all of his teachings. Which he will actually, when we get to chapter 18, and he's on trial, he will appeal to. When the high priest comes to him to start questioning him on his teaching, he says this. He says, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. You see, Jesus was not trying to create a secret ruse. He was not speaking in the shadows, giving a few insiders some knowledge No, His his life, His ministry, His miracles, His teachings, and even His death and His resurrection were all done out in the open. God did all of this out in the open. He didn't do this in a cave somewhere. Everything about Christ was in the open for the public to see. And John wants you to see that. His teaching and His claims were heard by thousands, and even this discourse was heard by thousands. But look at how it was heard. Look at verse 60. It says, When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now this time, John actually does shift his focus to a new demographic here. Not because the scene has changed or there's a different audience, but he's actually zeroing in on a subset group within this crowd who would have been defined as His closest followers. Those who at the time would have called themselves His disciples. You see, in the first century, to be one's disciple was to attach yourself to a particular teacher. It was to follow them. It was to consider them your rabbi. And so in this context, the word disciple does not necessarily denote Christian. Post-resurrection, especially in the book of Acts... A disciple absolutely means Christian. A Christian is a disciple of Christ. A disciple of Christ is a Christian. You cannot be a Christian without being a disciple. They are synonymous. But during his earthly life, many would attach themselves to him, considering themselves to be his disciples without actually fully understanding who he is or what he would do. And so because of that, Jesus actually had many more disciples than just the twelve and here John wants you to see that the offense of his teachings has now gone beyond the crowd, it's gone beyond the masses, and now it has reached his very own disciples. After hearing it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now this word hard here, it does not at all connote confusion about what is being said, or hard to understand, or anything like that. It actually connotes that this is something harsh, that what is being said is unpleasant, that what is being said is offensive, and it creates an adverse reaction to what is being said. They are completely put off with Christ. Who can even listen to this? Well, even though he is done with his formal teaching itself, one more time, Jesus is going to respond and one more time, he, he pushes the truth, causing a third and final offense. Look at what he says. Verse 61. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? John again is showing Jesus' divinity here as he displays omniscience. Jesus knowing in Himself that His disciples were grumbling. That is supernatural knowledge that is being communicated there. And it's not just the crowd that's grumbling now, it's actually His own disciples. And He calls them out for it. Do you take offense at this? He just calls them on the carpet. And He reveals the state of their heart, makes it open and public. They are offended at the Christ. They have stumbled over Christ, and truly they are offended at God. And Jesus asked them, Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? Now, the question is, what does He mean by this? Why why make this statement on the heels of everything that He just said? Well, in order to understand this, there is actually a big theme going on throughout the Gospel of John that plays heavily in this discourse. It's a theme that one of my professors in seminary referred to as the big U of the Gospel of John. Because all through this book we see this travel language applied to Christ. That Christ has come down from the Father who sent Him. He is dispatched from heaven to do the Father's work. And as such, He has taken on flesh and He has tabernacled among us. He has dwelt among us. And while among us, He's constantly saying things like, Come and see, follow me. Because he's, he's going somewhere. He's heading somewhere. He's not just come. He's also going. And where He is going is He is returning to the Father who sent Him. The big you. He has come down. He's among us. And He's returning back. And that's exactly what He says here when He says ascending to where He was before. This is, we see this when He prays just before His death in His high pri- priestly prayer, John 17. He says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. One of the things we're supposed to see all through this gospel, in light of that theme, understanding that, is that the return to the Father who sent Him, the path to glory for Christ, is through the cross. This comes out very clearly through the repeated lifted up language that we've already run into once. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. We talked about John 12 last week when he says, When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. When we see that language, the reader is supposed to ask, Is he talking about being lifted up on the cross? Or was he talking about being lifted up in glory? And the answer to that is yes. They are one and the same. For Christ, the path to glory was the cross. The cross was the means by which He returned to His Father in glory. The Messiah was glorified through His bloody death. And that is a total fulfillment. Of Isaiah. Because the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 actually begins, as we saw this morning, in Isaiah 52. It begins with these words God says, Behold, my servant. Which servant? Suffering servant. Behold, my servant shall act wisely, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. That is the introduction to the suffering servant. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. But the path to get there comes next. As many of you were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred, beyond human semblance, his form beyond that, the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle with many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before them like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we For our iniquities upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace and by His wounds we are healed. For the Messiah, the path to glory was through suffering. It was always through suffering. The return to the Father came via the cross. So what Jesus is saying here is that if you're offended by my having come down and given you this teaching that I laid forth before you, wait till you see my path to glory when I return to my Father through the cross. You see, for the Jews, the very idea of a crucified Messiah is just utter blasphemy. Rightly was Jesus prophesied to be, in Isaiah chapter 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And that's not just true for the Jews. It's true for all who reject Him. This is why Paul says, 1 Corinthians 1, Jews demand sign, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, meaning an offense and folly, just foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. That's why I go back to the assertion that I made at the very beginning that belief in the gospel is a supernatural act to those who are called. It is a supernatural reception of a supernatural message because the natural heart will always reject it. And that's exactly what Christ says here. Look at verse 63. He says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray Him. And He said, This is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it is granted him by the Father. Jesus now makes it clear why some did not believe, why many did not believe. Because the flesh is no help at all. By that, he's talking about human flesh, human nature. He's talking about the natural man. I actually really like the way the NET translation phrased this. It's a loose translation, but it gets the point. They said, the spirit is the one who gives life. Human nature is of no help. You see, no man, no human will has ever believed the message of Christ on its own. The true message of Christ is a stench to the natural man. And Jesus says, the words that I have spoken to you are, are spirit and life, meaning they are of the Spirit, they come from God, and they are life-giving to anyone who will receive them. But apart from the Spirit of God, apart from the Father's intervention, no one will receive them. This is why Jesus reasserts what He already said. This is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it's granted to them by the Father. See, that's why Jesus is not surprised by this. Jesus knows His own. He knew from the beginning who it is who would believe and who it was who would not. And those who believe did not do it on their own. They believed by grace. They believed by mercy. Jesus makes it clear that the power to believe actually comes from the Spirit, not from human nature. The Spirit is what enables one to believe. Again, the Apostle Paul is helpful here. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This is why I said that Gandhi is a liar. He did not like our Christ as he claimed. He did not like this Christ. He liked a Christ of his own imagination. One that excluded many aspects of what Jesus had explicitly claimed. Who fit in with his panoply of hundreds of thousands of other gods. And he was chastising Christians according to a make-believe Christ. Nobody likes this Christ on their own because all of us as humanity are born with hearts that love our sin and despise the one true God. Hearts that cannot and will not believe the truth. And that's what's put on display here in this final and tragic response from many of His disciples. Look at verse 66. After this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. You remember this chapter began with excitement. A mass of people following Jesus. A crowd ready to make Him King. His ministry was booming. Everything was on the rise. Everything is going wonderful by all outward appearances. But it ends with the masses utterly offended with Him and with many of the ones closest to Him, the ones who consider themselves His own disciples, turning back and rejecting Him with finality. See, if you ever thought all we have to do is be more Christ-like and we would win the masses, we would be world changers, people would be attracted to Christianity, the church would grow, you're wrong. It's actually the opposite. The more Christ-like we become, the more the world will reject us. Now, don't get me wrong. You can behave in such a way that undermines the gospel that you proclaim, that shames the name of Christ and brings reproach to the gospel. Absolutely. And we should all do everything in our power not to fall into that, not to trample underfoot the blood of Christ, as it's called in Hebrews. But we should not fall to the faulty idea that the world will be won over by our behavior. That the world does not come to Christ because we are not nice enough or because we haven't said enough nice things. Now, God's plan of redemption comes through the proclamation of the truth, the proclamation of the Son of God. And and for those who are called, He works in their hearts to see the glory of it to see the glory of Christ and to believe the message that we proclaim. It is a spiritual business. It's a supernatural business from beginning to end. And for that reason, if we want to reach people, we have to open our mouths. We have to actually speak forth the truth. We cannot be ashamed of the hard edges of the gospel. Don't shave that off. Don't be ashamed to speak of God's sovereign prerogative. Don't be ashamed to speak of the requirement of the new birth. Don't shy back from speaking about sin and the blood that was required and the blood that was shed as a result of our sin. Our job is not to try to candy coat God's message in order to make it more palatable to carnal men who by nature hate God. Our job is to present the message of truth in all of its splendor so that God may use the seed of the gospel as it goes forth to call forth his people through the powerful working of the Spirit of God inside of him. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to be intentionally offensive. Yes, Jesus clearly couched His message in offensive language in this particular discourse, but He did so because He knows the hearts of men and He knows what they were really after. They, just, they wanted to eat food. He was showing them what they really need to eat. He was revealing their hearts, that they were not His followers as they supposed themselves to be. Don't use this as an excuse to just be as offensive as possible. That's not at all what's going on here. Jesus knew what He was doing. But the gospel, it's an offense all on its own. You don't need to add to that. Just preach the truth. Just preach it raw. Let it out. Be real with who Christ is, with what God has done, with what the requirements are for man, and be real with who people are. And God will use it. Tell others of the message of salvation, and let God do what he will with the seeds of the gospel. As we do that, we will be an aroma of death to those who are perishing, First Corinthians 2, but we will be an aroma of life to those who are being saved. Proclaim the message of life that others may know and believe what you know and what you believe, church. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have not only redeemed us. Thank you that our our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Thank you also that you have brought us in the very purposes of your redemption that the reason we still exist here on earth is that we may walk in the good works that you have prepared for us beforehand that we may make christ known to a lost and dying world lord i pray for the grace to do that i pray for the grace that we need the courage that we need to speak the truth even when we know it may offend even when we know it may sting or cut. Lord, help our words to be an absolute aroma of life to those who are being saved, even when they are an aroma of death to those who are perishing. Lord, give us the courage to play a part in what You are doing, to cling to Christ. Thank You for the cross. Thank You for what He has done. Thank You for our salvation. Pray these things in Christ's name.